when we first started this at current rates of improvement, we wouldn't see global access to sanitation until about 2085. I realized that, you know, I was in my twenties and I wasn't going to be alive to see that happen. And that just seems mind boggling that, you know, this is the most basic of human needs. So, um, yeah, our mission is to try and cut that in half. And that's partly through funding ourselves, partly through advocacy and, and you know, seeing if we can kind of help move the needle on things like R&D for the work that Sanergy is doing, for example. Welcome back to the Sustainable Jungle podcast. I'm Joy, and today we are reflecting on toilet paper. Toilet paper has been a big theme this year, so for our very last episode of 2020, we thought it only right to go deep on this fascinating topic. Who better to talk toilet paper with than Simon Griffiths? Simon is the co-founder of Who Gives a Crap, the direct-to-consumer toilet paper company that is not only eco-friendly and plastic-free, but is also on a mission to solve some big, hairy problems. Who Gives a Crap donates a whopping 50% of their profits to help build toilets and improve sanitation in the developing world. They also aim to set an example by showing the world what impact can be achieved through this mission-based business model. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. So let's tear it up with Simon Griffiths. Hello, Simon. I'm just thrilled to have you join us on the show. Thank you for being here. Let's roll by starting with you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, yeah, good questions. I was born in um, Acton in, in London and then we moved to Perth when I was four. So I grew up in, in Perth um, until I was 17 and then I went back to the UK for a year and then moved to Melbourne, which is where I pretty much live most of the time now. Wow, yeah, your your accent is pretty Aussie though. There's no hint of London in there. <laughs> yeah. I think I've had most of it beaten out. My wife used to make fun of me when I said things in a slightly weird way because I've got British parents. So um have, you know, always kind of said some words differently. I think yogurt was one of them. <laughs> yes, you well, know, that's yogurt. guaranteed, yeah. you know, fair game to, to so, rip you off about that. <laughs> yeah, so now now I think it's finally gone. But, um, yeah, we, we actually spend a bit of time in the States for work now. So that's the one that's starting to creep in with, I think it's, become because I sort of make fun of the American accent and then it becomes like my go-to way of saying something which is terrible so I've got to work on that oh I know the feeling uh, my husband and I are both South African originally and we yeah our accent just adapts to whoever we're speaking to at the time and it can go all over the place into really strange places so yeah I can relate yeah whereabouts in South Africa oh in uh, from Johannesburg both of us originally. Johannesburg cool yeah yeah awesome I spent yeah a bit of time in Durban um many years ago um or just out of Durban yeah, yeah well I was yeah. actually just about to ask you about your career pre uh who gives a crap and I know that a very South African word was involved in one of your pre <laughs> who gives a crap worlds. so maybe you can tell us about that yeah sure so um yeah I mean I, I was originally an engineer um and then I also studied finance and economics. And so I tried my hand at engineering and realized that that wasn't for me. I tried my hand at banking and realized that wasn't for me. And I thought management consulting would be the thing that I wanted to kind of latch onto. And then when I finally got that offer, I realized that if I hadn't enjoyed being an engineer or a banker, <laughs> I probably wasn't going to enjoy being a management consultant either. And so I kind of backflipped and, and worked in um, a nonprofit in South Africa in, in Durban or just outside of Durban. And, um, yeah, it was kind of really like in an environment that I loved. I'd spent a lot of time in the developing world at that point and knew that I was working on outcomes that I truly cared about, but yeah, it was sort of fairly limited in the amount of impacts that I could have in that role. You know, it was only ever going to be the, the model we were working on was only going to ever be able to impact a few thousand people. And I knew that, you know, to solve 
big global social problems like education or sanitation, you have to be able to impact at least a million people just to start making a dent. Um, and so I started thinking about, yeah, what, what, you know, what was right? What could I use my skill set for, which was around innovation, markets, you know, business, what could I use that skill set for to achieve outcomes I truly cared about, which was focused on the developing world on, on social mobility in particular, like you know, how come, because I was born in, in um, the UK that gave me a different pathway in life than someone that was born in say South Africa, for example. And um, that sort of led me to this idea of, you know, what if we could create businesses in you know, Australia and, and parts of the developed world that, that give back and, and use the profits from everyday purchases to start funding initiatives that help to shift the needle on social mobility. And so the first one of those was uh, a click to give website in 2007 called ripple where we showed different ads and, and you'd um, you know, hundred percent of the revenue from the ad you watch was donated to an organization that you selected. The second one was um, a, a nonprofit bar and band room in Melbourne called Shabine, which is a South African word for kind of a, a speakeasy. And, you know, they sprung up during the apartheid era when sort of drinking and trade was outlawed in the, in the black townships. And, um, you know, when apartheid fell, they sort of slowly became legalized. So there's a lot of legal Shabines today, which is where you go to buy booze in the townships, but also a lot of illegal ones too, which is where the kind of late night party times happen that, you know, a, l- a little bit less safe. Um, and um, yeah, I ran that for three and a half years and realized that, you know, one of the challenges with that business model, loved that, loved that business model, loved that concept, but again, challenging in the amount of scale that it can reach because it's a bricks and mortar business, you know, hospitality is inherently difficult to scale. So started thinking about, yeah, mass market products, what we could sell that could reach anyone regardless of where they were and regardless of whether they or not. And then one day walked into the bathroom, saw a six pack of toilet paper and said, oh my God, we should sell toilet paper, (laughs) use it to help build toilets and gives a crap. And that was how this all happened. (laughs) So now we have been personally very big fans of who gives a crap now for years. Um, But for those listening who don't know anything about who gives a crap, could you give us a little overview? Yeah, so, so we sell environmentally friendly toilet paper, so either out of you know recycled materials or bamboo and, and sometimes sugarcane in some of our materials. And we use half of our profits to help build toilets in different parts of the developing world. We're direct to consumer, so you order on our website and we ship direct to your door and have free delivery for you know, 70% of Australians, but we're also now national in the US, UK. We've just opened up Europe and we're shipping into Canada too. It's very exciting. But let's keep going on the founding story. How did you... What happened next? So I had the idea. I was in the bathroom, had the idea. <laughs> Where all the I best ideas the bathroom. happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finished up in the bathroom and then I called three friends and, and said, what do you think? And they all said, it's awesome. You've got to do it. And the third friend that I called was my friend Jehan, who was working. He just finished at Boston Consulting Group and was trying to figure out what to do next. And he said, let me come and start this company with you. And so we met up at a supermarket and we stared at supermarket shelves and, and said, I think there's something in this. I think we can pull this off. And then we realized that we had no idea what we were doing, but we want a spot at a social business incubator called the Unreasonable Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And that was in 2010. And while we were there, we met uh, this guy called Daniel Alexander, who um, loved what we were doing. And uh, it was like he you know, instantly gelled with how we thought about things, but had all of the skills that we didn't have as a founding team. He came from a product design background and had spent time in um, a consumer packaged goods company called Method who make household cleaning products and soaps. 
and um, yeah, it was kind of the 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 yin to uh, yang, if that, that makes sense, because there was two of us already. But um, he became the third co-founder, and so it took us about two years then to reach our crowdfunding campaign, which we launched in June 2012. And the kind of impetus for that was, you know, we need to find the first fifty thousand dollars to to place the, the the initial production run, which is how much it costs to place a, a first PO purchase order for toilet paper. But also if we pull that off and we land $50,000 worth of product, we're going to have 50,000 rolls of toilet paper, which is enough to fill our entire houses from floor to ceiling. So <laughs> we also need to find the customers who can take it off our hands. And so crowdfunding was kind of the perfect solution where we get the money we needed, we could find the customers that, that we needed, and we could also test whether people would actually buy toilet paper called who gives a crap online, which a lot of very smart marketing people said would never happen. <laughs> and so we launched that campaign in 2012. One of the very smart marketing people that was working on it, who did think it was possible. He had this great idea. His name was Lock Hall. He had this great idea to, you know, film the whole crowdfunding campaign with me sitting on a toilet. And I should pledge to not get off that toilet until we pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. And so we launched at 6am on a Tuesday morning in Melbourne and uh, I think, you know, I was basically live streaming myself with me sitting on a, a toilet that wasn't connected to a wall with my pants down. I had some boxer shorts on underneath that you couldn't see them because of the way my jacket was was hung. And um, we, we quite quickly went viral. We got picked up by national television on breakfast TV, national print in Australia, did 2.5 million social media hits. Uh, and so, and so we hit that $50,000 fundraising goal in 50 of the most horrible, never, ever to be repeated hours of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been pooped. Surely there must be some sort of Guinness world record going for such an epic feat. Yeah. I think, um, if there is a Guinness world record for sitting on the toilet, it will most certainly be mine, but <laughs> I haven't checked. I should, should have a look, but, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad by the end of it, to be honest. I, um, was hallucinating because I was so tired. I had so much pain in my legs, but was so tired that I just didn't care anymore. And um, yeah, I had to get checked out for deep vein thrombosis. Luckily, got the all clear. But um, yeah, we thought I might have done some some somewhat serious damage. So glad it all kind of turned out okay. Oh my goodness! Gosh, well that is commitment for sure. How did you go to the toilet? Did you were you allowed to take breaks to at least go to the toilet? I hope. Yeah. So, so I mentioned that, um, you know, I was sitting on there with my pants off, but I had boxer shorts on, but you couldn't see them. So every four hours we got reported for pornographic content because it looked like I was naked. And, and so the streaming service would get taken down and that gave us 10 to 15 minutes to find a new streaming service. And so that was enough time for me to get up, stretch my legs, go to the real bathroom and then come back kind of you know, get set in for, for the next four to six hour kind of block. So, um, yeah, we, we were quite lucky. I was probably the only person that's been thankful for getting reported for pornography in their life. That's <laughs> hilarious. Wow. Starting with a bang. And since then, of course, Who Gives a Cramp, I, I'm sure, has been growing based on what I've, you know, seen in the marketplace with people just loving the brand and loving the products. Um, have you had to, to bring in outside investment or have you been able to mostly fund the business organically? Yeah, so this is a funny story. The short answer is um, no, no external equity investment um, to date. The long answer is that you know we landed that first production run. We thought no one would buy toilet paper online. You know, like this is kind of well, some people would, but it would never be a significant amount of the population. Ninety-nine point nine percent of Australia's toilet paper was sold in supermarkets in two thousand and twelve, and so <clears throat> we. Um, Landed what we thought was going to last us about three months worth of you know of daily sales based on our current sales run rate, 
And then without us doing any marketing or selling ourselves, as soon as we started shipping product out to our crowdfunding campaign supporters, our daily sales doubled every day on the previous day. And after five days, we sold out of that complete three-month supply. And that was because our customers were posting photos of our product on Instagram with their kids and their pets. And they were literally taking rolls of toilet paper to work and giving them away to their colleagues saying, you've got to check this out. That's the most awesome thing. And that huge word of mouth kind of groundswell led us to, you know, sell out so much more quickly than what we were expecting. And so it took us three months to catch back up. We had enough money, you know, we had to triple our order volume because we realized at this point, you know, this is a, this is a bigger business than what we thought would, would be possible, at least in the online channel. And we had enough money to place the deposit on that order, but not pay for the goods when they were due to land in eight weeks time. And so we had to go and find $50,000, another $50,000 to kind of pay for the the balance when they landed. And during that time, I was very lucky to meet um, a philanthropist who was helping me think about how to get money out of, you know, how to donate money in the most tax efficient way so that we didn't end up paying tax to the government on money that we should have been, you know, donating and and essentially making our donations lower as a result. And he said, you know, what other problems have you got? What else are you thinking about? And I said, oh, I've also got this $50,000 toilet paper problem. And he said, well, maybe I can help you with that too. And three weeks later, he wrote us our very first piece of debt, which was quite high risk, but um, basically allowed us to land that $50,000 order. And I think he said, you know, pay me back in, in 18 months and, you know, pay 1% interest every month. But instead of paying it to me, you'll pay it to my favorite water-based charity. So from our point of view, it was a really high impact piece of, of finance and we'd rather take money from him than anyone else as a result of that. Um, and so it was kind of this beautiful win-win. I think we paid him back in five months and he said, look, if you ever want to do this again, let me know. And we kept um, you know, working with him for three or four years. I think in the end, we had about $800,000 of debt in the business, but we were paid all of that 18 months ago and we're debt-free and, and cash flow positive and just continuing to grow off off the existing revenue that comes in every month. I love that story. Gosh, how often do you hear a story like that about your, your lender, your financier, right? <laughs> what an incredible guy. I think that's like the power of our model. And you know, the, the punchline there that I missed out is that, you know, we've now double, tripled the size of the business every year and, and our donations have grown a ton as well. So, We've now donated $8.38 million in Australian dollars for the first seven years of operations. Um, so, you know, being a high growth business that donates 50% of your profits, you should not be able to do that without, you know, taking on equity that kind of breaks the physics of, of startups essentially. Um, so we were able to do that because our customers are amazing and they you know love telling other people about what we do because of the impact that it has. That's such a huge part of the, the customer experience. And then likewise, we were able to find this really unconventional form of finance because of the impact that was ingrained in the business model. And so impact has been like our, you know, our secret weapon in our, in our back pocket, which um, is just amazing. So it makes me incredibly excited about what the future of social business looks like because you can bend the rules that you know, typically apply to business and make them work in ways that, that other businesses just can't do. Yeah. Oh, gosh, so much to unpack from all that. Uh, let's start one by one. I was I was asking about the fund, funding model because I was curious about the donations model because it's not every day you get sort of such generous shareholders to you know allow you to donate fifty percent of your profits. So yeah. that's just incredible <laughs> that you've been able to do that. So how did you decide that fifty percent of profits is the right number? That's a crap load of profits. 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we kind of started the, the company because we wanted to have the most impact possible. And we thought originally that it would be a non-profit toilet paper company. That was where we started from. But uh, as I'd said before, I had some experience running non-profit businesses and realized that they, in a way, you know, by donating 100% of your profit, you sort of hamstring yourself because it's very hard to continue growing the business if you have to pay all of your profits out at the end of the financial year because you don't have any retained earnings to reinvest in the growth of the business to you know buy more stock next year than what you sold this year. And so um, you end up kind of building this business that gets bigger and bigger. But to do that, you have to take on more and more debt every year forever. And it just gets less and less stable as a business model. And so, you know, having seen that, I had that experience in, in a prior business. Um, and then also, you know, getting challenged by by some of the mentors that were at the, the social business incubator, the Unreasonable Institute that we were at, who were very smart. They said, if you do that, you can never take on external capital, which restricts how you can grow. You can't, you know, award equity to staff members, which gives you know beautiful incentives that kind of aligns everyone to to, to grow the business, which is ultimately how you're going to have the most impact. And so we came back to it and thought, you know, if, if we're really trying to have the most impact, is 100% the right way to do it or do we need to think about this differently? And we came to the conclusion that maybe 50% was better because we could then grow the business faster by doing all of those things that we couldn't do if we were donating 100% and as a result be at least twice as big, which would enable us to have more impact than if we were donating 100% of our profits. And so we made that switch and we think it's a really great medium. You know, it's enabled us to grow the business in the way that we have. Uh, you know, very fortunate to have been able to do that without external capital, which kind of proves that the retained earnings kind of, you know, piece really works. And uh, hopefully it kind of paves the way for, for many other businesses to hopefully, you know, copy what we've done and, and do this in different categories with different products. I was going to ask you about, um, well, two things. Like, first of all, the role of business like, like who gives a crap, which is mission-based, right? What is that role as we face sort of this era of needing to solve a huge array of environmental and social problems? Like where does business fit into that picture? Yeah, I think business is like a, a huge part of that picture. I think um, I've, I've probably referenced this too many times recently, yeah. but someone we really like, um, this this guy called Ernesto Schmidt, I heard him recently talk about, um, he's, he's at Craftery, which is kind of a cause-based venture capital firm. I've heard him recently talk about um, how you know he sees three three ways to create change in the world. The first is to be one of the mega billionaires, the Bill Gateses of the world, who can you know move mountains with their wealth. But there's very few of them. The second is to you know have a very powerful role in government and be able to you know to really shift policy in a positive way. But again, there's very few of them, and it comes with the you know the, the caveat of all of the politics that go with that. And the third is to be one of you know many many consumers one of millions of consumers that make a very small change that when you do that collectively across millions of people ends up having a massive amount of impact and so business is the mechanism to allow consumers to to make those changes that can you know shift a huge amount of impact but more importantly create this whiplash that forces other players in the industry and in the category to shift the way that they're doing business in order to remain competitive and at a whole, that can have just a huge amount of, of you know, good that comes from it. And so that's that's kind of our view of change and how, how we think about it. So, you know, yes, we want to have social impact ourselves, environmental impact ourselves. We want to give our, our team a great experience and have impact there. But the probably the most change possible is if we can shift the way that business operates 
you know, in other industries and help bring more entrepreneurs and more investors into this space to create tens of thousands of business models like ours that will ultimately solve hopefully many of the world's problems. I love that. So it's clearly a goal of yours. And I think it's amazing to, to, to think about this direct consumer model and the potential impact, especially where you have a brand like who gives a crap, who has such a high profile and such high engagement directly with customers who clearly are very passionate about their brand. So have you, I mean, I imagine that, that a ripple effect will start to happen, right? Have you, have you seen any other categories tackle this type of model so far or any copycats, like in the best possible way, I mean, copycats? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, the Dirt Company out of Melbourne is a great example. They've gone into the laundry category with a very similar kind of, you know, 50% of profits approach. There's lots of them and that's super exciting. Like we're really humbled to see, you know, that, that occurring and, and hope that, um, you know, we can make more noise ourselves to, to show that this can be successful, you know, this business model can be successful at scale, both in financial terms and in impact terms. And if we can do that, then we'll hopefully attract even more people into, into the space that we're in. Uh, let's go back to, to impact. So obviously $8.3 million is amazing. What an incredible achievement. Where, where, where do these donations go? Yeah, so we, we fund, um, you know, we talk about, helping to build toilets our funding's slightly broader than that because it turns out that if you generally speaking if you just focus on sanitation by itself instead of sanitation water and hygiene education those three things together you end up being about one tenth as effective if you just focus on sanitation than doing all three of those things so we broadly fund what's called wash so water and sanitation hygiene education and we partner with different organizations in you know different parts of the world for, for different reasons we kind of take a portfolio approach to, to how we invest the donations so you know we've got um, a blue chip stock in that portfolio that makes up the bulk of the portfolio and for us that's water aid so we know that they do great work and and that that's very reliable and, and should be a big part of our portfolio. We work with them in you know a lot of Australia's closest neighbours, so East Timor, Papua New Guinea, Cambodia, and then with WaterAid USA in Central America. And then we also partner with some high-risk, high-return organisations. So one of those is is Sanergy, who um, based in Nairobi in Kenya, and their model is working in the, the urban slums, which are very densely populated. You can't get cars through them. You can't plumb them. And so you have to have above ground toilets with, you know, canisters that you can close off with waste inside them to put on a trolley to wheel out to get loaded onto a truck that then gets taken off site and processed. And they then mix it with, you know, waste from from restaurant kind of, you know, food scraps and then use black soldier flies to eat all of that waste. And then they turn that into either fertilizer or um, or livestock feed, which are kind of their two revenue streams that, that come out of, um, yeah, of you know, human waste, which is kind of alchemy and creepy, but amazing. And so if they can prove that that, that model can work and it lowers the cost of putting toilets into the urban slums to about $10 per person, it becomes more cost-effective for the government to fund the rollout of toilets across all of the urban slums than it does for them to have the public health cost of, of sanitation in the economy, which works out at about $10 a head. And so they're doing their first kind of partnerships with governments now stepping outside. We've just funded them to step outside of, of Nairobi and into Kasumu, which is the, 
their second city. And um, yeah, that's kind of you know amazing to see that project growing and getting closer to reaching that tipping point where it can hopefully you know be funded by the government. They'll take over the funding of it moving forward and and help roll it out to the eight million people in urban slums in Kenya and then go you know further abroad from there. And then the last part of the portfolio uh, are kind of high return, low volume partners. So generally local partners in country doing amazing work with relatively small budgets. So if we write a check for a million dollars, it blows their budget out and they become inefficient with their spending. And so we love those guys that do incredible work, but you you, you need to keep the check size relatively small. So you need lots of them in order for it to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so that makes up our kind of broad portfolio. Um, and um, yeah, is our kind of theory of change. Have you read um, uh, Jacqueline Novogratz's book, a manifesto for a moral revolution. It's she's no. the, she's the CEO of Acumen Fund, and she, oh, talk, cool. she talks about Sanergy quite a bit in in her book. Um, and yeah. that model, yeah, very cool, very inspiring. I think you would enjoy the book. <laughs> it sounds about it. Yeah, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, they've they've been a, a great funder of theirs. There's a few. Yeah, we we kind of got the way that we think about things from you know who, who we, we when we started doing this we looked at who are the smartest philanthropists globally? And, you know, Acumen was kind of one of the people on that list. Um, but we sort of spent a lot of time talking to the, the guys at the Malago Foundation in San Francisco, at um, Jasmine Social Investments in New Zealand and at um, the Wheeler Family Foundation or the Wheeler Foundation, which came out of Lonely Planet in uh, in Australia. And that's sort of where we built up that you know, approach of, of how we think about things. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, there's been a lot of, we're not the smartest guys in the room when it comes to that. So we love, you know, hearing about other, how other people are doing it and continuing to get better over time. You obviously think about this very strategically and you think about the numbers, you know, like what is the most, uh, what, what is the best, the most good we can do basically with this money. But, um, in hearing about how this money has actually been able to change lives on the ground, do you have any sort of personal favorite stories that jump to mind? There's lots. I think, um, you know, the, everyone that spends time in the field comes away with something different. One of the sort of ones for me was in uh, East Timor with WaterAid. We visited a village that WaterAid was just about to start working with to provide, you know, toilets, water, hygiene education. And and the the energy and the vibe was just very low. You know, everyone was, um, yeah, very flat and, and, you know, it was visible that, that, it was you know kind of lethargic almost then the next day we visited a village that they'd wrapped up a project in a year prior and you could just see like the kids were healthy everyone was full of energy like it was visibly incredibly different you know just seeing what it was like in those two villages because now people are less sick and there's you know much better kind of you know, health throughout the community, which, um, yeah, it was quite stark being able to see those, those big differences. So, yeah, I think for me, that was kind of one of the big moments. I think one of the other ones was this, this realization of, you know, thinking why, why all these families are huge. Like why have they got you know so many kids? And that's partly because they, they need help on, um, you know, farming to, to make sure that they can bring money in. And it's partly because the you know sanitation's the diarrhea related disease that comes from poor sanitation, that's the second largest killer of kids under the age of five. And so I remember thinking, you know, we had a very young kid at home who I was certain was going to make it to five. 
and that's not a certainty in these environments. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that really hit home, you know, with a very young child back back in Australia, that um, that was you know, a massive privilege that I'd just always taken for granted that that isn't universal. And that's kind of pretty, pretty gut-wrenching, I think. Mm, absolutely. And, and when you started Who Gives a Crap, there were 2.4 billion people without toilets. And now there are 2 billion without toilets. So it's definitely yep. some improvement, but still a big gap, right? How much more needs to be done? Like what, what can the world do to sort of accelerate this even further? Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, those numbers, they still move around a bit because it's, it's quite hard. You can't take a, a global survey and ask everyone <laughs> without a toilet whether they've got one or not. Right. So there's there's a little bit of sort of math that gets done in the background to figure out, you know, what's the, the current best estimate. So um, that's the current best estimate. So there's been improvement. We think it's, you know, roughly 400 million people, which is amazing. And my understanding is a lot of that's come from India where they've had a really big governmental push to kind of get to what they call total sanitation across the country. I think, you know, the Gates Foundation, I believe, has done a lot of work to, you know, help help propel that forward. Um, but, you know, amazing to see massive, massive impact and a lot of it coming from one place. So it sort of shows if you can, if you, can you know, really kind of find the right governmental forces, then it's possible to, to kind of shift things in a way that's incredibly positive. Um, so that's super exciting, but, you know, we're not going to see in the next decade, I don't, don't think that improved by another 400 million people because there isn't another India where we can go and do that again. So we've got kind of the hardest fight in front of us um, and, um, yeah, really, you know, making sure that we're working with every country for where they're at on that journey from, you know, 20% coverage up to 100% coverage and solving the different challenges that come all the way along that spectrum. Because someone who's at 20% coverage, you know, that's really about getting into some of the, the rural poor areas and, and doing this kind of grassroots kind of community-led total sanitation. But once you're at 60% plus, then it becomes more about how do we, how do we help activate the market for toilets to be sold and, and bought to support the entrepreneurs to help us get, you know, from the final 60 up to 100 because that then relies on market forces to make that happen. So the approaches you know, really vary from country to country, culturally, and then also based on where they're, where they're at on that journey to total sanitation. I mean, it feels by 2020, we shouldn't have a problem like this anymore. You know, like we're super advanced humans. We, we can do better, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, like when, when we first started this at current rates of improvement, we wouldn't see global access to sanitation until about 2085. I realized that, you know, I was in my twenties and I wasn't going to be alive to see that happen. And that just seems mind boggling that, you know, this is the most basic of human needs. So, um, yeah, our mission is to try and cut that in half and that's partly through funding ourselves, partly through advocacy and, and, you know, seeing if we can, kind of help move the needle on things like R&D for the work that Sanergy is doing, for example. Exciting. And now a, a critical topic for us on this podcast, of course, is sustainability. And Who Gives a Crap has become very popular amongst the eco-warriors and zero-wasters who are not yet quite game enough to dabble in the old family cloth. And that, that includes yeah. us, of course. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about the materials used for the toilet paper? Yeah, so... Um, we have, we started with a hundred percent recycled product. So that's using, you know, typically kind of 
office paper or textbooks um, and that's environmentally the lightest because the the pulping process to go from you know a soft paper that's recycled into a pulper that mixes it up and then turns it into you know another form of, of paper in tissue paper that's a, a relatively light process it doesn't use um, as much water and you know, it's chemically less intensive than when you're going from a hard material like a timber um, so that's kind of the you know the environmentally the best material and then we also have bamboo that's our premium product and the idea there was that we believed that we couldn't we couldn't get you know the whole market to shift to recycled there'd be some people with too much stigma and and you know the recycled paper fibers are shorter because they've been broken through the recycle recycling process which makes the tissue less soft and less strong and so we thought we probably need to use you know something that has longer fibers but is still you know great from a sustainability perspective and so bamboo was really interesting because it is a you know fast growing grass so um, in terms of land use there's a lot of positive benefits there and, and you're not you know pulling stuff out of the ground you're, you're cutting it and letting it regrow which um, has a lot of other benefits that come with it as well and so they're the core products that we use and then we've recently launched a, a dream cloth which is a, a kind of reusable um, cross between a paper towel and a sponge and so that one is made from upcycled cotton and then we also have some that's our only product that's got trees in it because it's got you know such a a long life to it it gets reused time and time again we're okay using fsc trees in, in that product we i've tried obviously the recycled and the bamboo and the recycled is is still much better quality than the sort of cheap stuff that you get at the supermarket right like it's it's not uncomfortable by any means um but i guess some folks just really want that soft bamboo but even my dad who's been like a three-ply guy all his whole life is very happy with the recycled version of who goes a crap so and we see that like 70% of Australian customers, you know, recycled is good enough. But um, there's certainly some people who use recycled for the first time and say, that's terrible. I, you know, could never do that. And for them, we say, well, give the bamboo, you know, that that's the next best option. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we found that's worked well. And we see that, you know, bamboo tends to be a little bit more popular in the US, for example, where, um, I don't know, different consumer. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and presume you have some certainty that there's there's no deforestation taking place for the bamboo plantations that supply. Who gives a crap? Yeah. So so the you know the way that when we first started bamboo, we kind of went up the supply chain and we saw that um, the bamboo was being grown on the outskirts of um, you know typically um, like subsistence farming type environments. So it was um, then kind of you know harvested and, and taken to a co-op, and then taken to the pulper from there. So that the the land use component of that was um, was good because it was you know ne- alongside existing farmland, um, and so that was yeah how we kind of approached the sustainability side of that. And tell us about the production. I've seen folks in the various eco groups on Facebook share that they're not overly thrilled about production being in China and they prefer to have it in Australia or whatever. Um, what are the, the reasons behind choosing China as a production partner? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we first started, we spoke to Australian producer and, and they basically told us to go to China was was how that, that conversation came about. I think that, um, you know, we, we then said, okay, with that, does it make sense from kind of a, a transport footprint point of view? And on the back of the envelope, we kind of ran the numbers on it because we found out that ships are, you know, so much more environmentally efficient than trucks 
And so we worked out that we had six warehouses, you know, seven warehouses around Australia that we could ship into with a with a boat and do this mile delivery in you know, last mile, so to speak, a bit more than that, um, in a truck. Then the environmental footprint of transporting via a ship and then trucking to our customer was the same as having a single production facility in Australia and then trucking product all around the country and then shipping it out to our customers from there. And so we kind of got comfortable. We're like, oh, actually, you know, because ships are so much more efficient that that, you know, checks out. Um, And that was how we got started. And then I think, you know, China has been actually a key part of our kind of global strategy. So if we did have an Australian manufacturer, we would not have ever been able to go into the UK and the US. And we now sell more outside of Australia than we do inside Australia. So when we come back to how do we create the most impact, um, having that global centralized manufacturing in China actually enables us to have more impact than if we'd started in Australia with a single producer and and then weren't able to export because the the cost of manufacturing was too high to be competitive globally. So in the long run, you know, we'd love to kind of um, get to domestic production. The benefits there are higher in the UK, for example, than they are in Australia because the UK, um, that same analysis of transport footprint doesn't stack up to the same degree as what it does in Australia. You, know, you use one warehouse to hit all of the UK. And if you had one producer, you could hit all of the UK from there as well. So um, that's kind of our, you know, our, our focus from an environmental perspective. And then probably the US is where the next biggest benefit is. And then Australia after that, but it will depend on the, the relationship with the producers. So in Australia, there's two recycled manufacturers that's on assets millions and millions of dollars and we compete with them so um, for them to supply us they'd need to get comfortable with the fact that that you know we may may potentially continue to cannibalize their sales moving forward and become a bigger part of their production than their own brands and that's a challenging conversation to have so (laughs) we need to sort of get to the economies of scale where we can you know really um yeah have those conversations in a way that's meaningful and we're, we're probably not too far away from doing that it does seem to be the case with any business that's trying to be as sustainable as possible is there's always these trade-offs to make, you know, like you're trading off your, your impact versus your sustainability in some cases. Yeah, it's kind of short run versus long run as well. So, you know, where are we happy to take a hit today on the basis that we can optimize for that in the future and get it to an even better place than what, you know, the current standard is today. Um, and so we're, you know, constantly having to think about that and that's any new business. So, if you know if if people wanted to 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 i'm trying to think of a good analogy but if someone only wanted to to buy the most sustainable thing available today there'd be no incentive for anyone to do any r&d because it's very expensive to make things that are you know that are improvements and better and so you sort of need to support people having a crack with the right long-term values knowing that that if they're not perfect today they'll continue to get better over time um and so that's, um, yeah, that's kind of a continuous journey for us as a company and, and something that, you know, we, we're very open to, to talk about. It's not something that we try to hide behind, um, but, you know, our, our values and our ethics are in the right place. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep getting better and we're confident that, that we'll be you know, much better than everyone else in, in 10 years' time. Totally. And, of course, the packaging is what really attracts those who are interested in reducing their waste because the roles compact in these beautifully individual wrapped you know in wrapping in paper wrappings and then they come in a cardboard box so how conscious was that decision to sort of eliminate plastic from that process and how is who gives a crap thinking about plastic and packaging going forward yeah so i think you know again when we kind of first started we realized that we wouldn't be in supermarkets so 
we could think about how we package that product a little bit differently. And so Danny, one of the co-founders said, why don't we wrap every roll individually and do 48 different designs in a box? And I said, our producer will kill us if we do that because it'd be a total nightmare, but I reckon I can get them to, to give us five different designs. And so that's where we kind of got started. Again, we, we said to ourselves, well, are we okay with that from, you know, an environmental perspective? We're using extra paper wrap-up rolls. And I took a step back and thought about it and realized that every single part of our product is paper. You know, the box, the core, the tissue, our entire product, like literally 100% of it is paper. So if we think about how much paper goes into the manufacturing of our product, how much is the wrapper on a square meter basis? And I worked out that it was about 1% of every roll that we sell. And so we said, well, how about instead of making our rolls 10.5 centimeters wide, we make them 10 centimeters wide. And that way we're actually using you know, roughly 5% less paper overall in our product because the bulk of the paper is in the actual roll. And then we can repurpose one of that to, to, to wrap the roll up and keep it moisture-free and hygienic. And so that was the kind of trade-off that we made. And um, yeah, the kind of idea there was, you know, with the designs was, can we design something that's kind of so fun, so beautiful, so joyous that someone will take it out of the bathroom cupboard, which is where toilet paper put it on display. And that was one of those crazy ideas that we had that actually worked. And, and that's kind of been a, a great part of the brand. I love the wraps. I used them to wrap all of our Christmas presents last year. And yep, awesome. they also get used for our doggy's poop as well. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, they're perfect for dog poop. They yeah. are so great for dog poop. Um, but we also, of course, like to read the toilet-themed puns. I mean, that was a stroke of genius. Who came up with that idea? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of hard-baked into the DNA, <laughs> I think, from day zero. But, um, yeah, we, we, need to, we need to renew those a little bit more regularly to try and try and keep them really fresh. So um, I think that's something that we've got on our, our product roadmap for this next year so you know every six months we'll roll out a, a new set of packaging puns to to make sure that everyone's getting something new with each order i'm very excited for that i feel like i've read them all a couple of times now so that'd be good um and this year of course has been has not been easy for most businesses but the toilet paper industry has boomed and i know that who, yep. who gives a crap has it was sold out everywhere you just couldn't could not get a roll um so you guys of course had a different set of unique challenges to the usual uh what happened and how are things going now yeah, that's a way of framing it. It really was a challenging year for us as well, but just challenging in a very different way. So, um, you know, I'll tell you kind of the backstory there. We, we, at the start of March, kind of had seen, you know, um, the run on toilet paper in Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and said, oh, crazy. You know, that would never happen in any of our markets. <laughs> and then the first day of March, you know, our daily sales doubled. The, the second day they were up kind of 5x, then 12x the next day. And it looks like we're going to do a 30 to 40 times day of sales a day after that. I think at our peak, we were selling 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, which is um, pretty crazy when you think about that in a <laughs> supermarket environment, for example. Um, so I think we became like the largest seller of toilet paper in Australia on that day. We, we realized that we had to turn our store to sold out so that we could make sure we had enough product for our subscribers and our business customers. So we did that and we set up a, an email wait list so you could find out when we're back in stock. We thought we'd get a few thousand signups. We had more than half a million people sign up for that wait list. And that creates a pretty challenging environment to operate in because we would never have enough inventory to, you know, first of all, we'll turn our website on, which would probably sell out straight away. And then second of all, start emailing people, you know, 500,000 people saying, hey, we're back in stock. You know, everything would be gone in, in like five seconds. So... 
we had to think really creatively, how do we get toilet paper to the most people possible? And so we started to repack our big 48 roll boxes into two 24 packs. We launched a new SKU for one of our, one of our products in a 24 pack. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in the course of a week so we could triple our customer service inquiry. And then we set up an invite only version of our website and slowly started to invite people based on you know when they'd signed up through that store to just take enough orders every day to max out our warehouse and our carriers capacity. So um, we did that, you know, secret toilet paper club online for about six to eight weeks. And we ended up, yeah, emailing more than it ended up being over 600,000 people that, that came, you know, received emails from us to come through the store. I think we broke every email marketing metric in the book, which was pretty crazy, but, um, you know, really kind of challenging environment for our team, really, you know, meaty problems to solve. I think everyone said it was the most exhilarated, but the most exhausted they'd ever been at work before. And I think, you know, on top of that, you know, the world was kind of melting down around us. That was that period of March, April, where every day there was a new kind of crazy headline that you never thought you'd, you'd read in your lifetime on the on the front of the paper. Um, so, you know, hats off to everyone. So I think we knew that if we all dug deep, that it would result in this awesome donation coming into financial year. And so, yeah, making that, that $5 million donation at, at June 30 or a little bit more than that was you know, a big celebration and a, a whole lot of relief for everyone. And so I think um, we ended up sort of having, seeing sales kind of slow down a little bit after that. I think people had stocked up through the, the first half of the year. And so the category as a whole had, you know, kind of a pretty big drop in sales. Um, but the online sales channel stayed pretty strong because people were wanting to stay home and have things delivered. So it's all stabilized now and we're back to normal, which is kind of the environment that we prefer to operate in. Of course, yeah. Uh, I wonder if there's much of a black market now for toilet paper, like there's somebody who's, you know, stocked up with mountains of toilet paper at the beginning of the year is still sort of supplying things on the sly. <laughs> yeah, there, there certainly, there definitely was one for a while there. I think we were, you know, trying to get things taken down because it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't right. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I kind of kept my, my local post office stocked with rolls. So everyone that lived around where we do could at least get a roll or two where they needed to from the post office. But yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty interesting time. I think, you know, we're again, like we're quite lucky that our customers buy big boxes from us. And so we were really encouraging everyone to think about making sure their neighbors and their friends were okay, because if they were from us, they definitely had enough to be able to share with other people. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was you know, a pretty um, interesting moment to be, to be working in a toilet paper company and, and asking people to, to, to share product around, but, but something that was fairly well received. Totally. Yeah. We, we were lucky. We received our, our 48 box um, just the week before lockdown. So it was nice to be able to, to offer our toilet paper around because we didn't have the problems that others were having because, you know, 48 rolls gets you like three, five, three to five months, right? So we were yeah we were pretty lucky <laughs> yeah it's awesome yeah we had we had definitely had some customers who um said that they had you know tried to order 48 rolls and they typed in 48 and then the next day 48 boxes of 48 rolls showed up because oh they had got their quantity kind of mixed up um and so they that was like you know mid-february and they got in touch and said oh you know, we've made this mistake. We said, no problem. We'll sort it out. And they said, oh, actually, maybe we'll hold on to it and we can sell them as part of a school fundraiser. And so we refunded them part of the shipping costs. So, you know, brought the cost down a bit because we were able to ship it in bulk. And um, 
then you know two weeks later the world ran out of toilet paper and they kind of ended up going viral on the internet so i think we saw that article in like seven different languages you know spread all around the world of these people with kind of toilet paper thrones made out of their you know, thousands of rolls of, of who gives a crap which was awesome <laughs> i remember seeing some who gives a crap rolls up high in somebody's window like in an apartment yeah. it's like stacked high like the whole way up and i was like either they're showing off or they're asking to be robbed like one of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think yeah people were certainly worried about their boxes getting stolen from their doorstep at that point so was um yeah pretty interesting <laughs> who would have thought toilet paper became the most valuable item in your house <laughs> within the space yeah. of a couple of weeks um but now just going back to sort of the theme of of serial entrepreneurship and mission-based entrepreneurship for you personally what are you most proud of when you look back on what who gives a crap has achieved aside from of course accumulating the world's largest collection of toilet puns because that's obviously number one <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, you know something that that may be sort of less obvious from the outside in is that we're very proud of being able to support our team to you know, work in in jobs that they really care about and hopefully excited to to come to work each day. Um, and we have a, a big team in the Philippines who, you know, because they're working remotely now, don't have to deal with traffic and night shifts and all of the stuff that comes with working in you know call centers in manila which is um alongside delhi the worst you know worst traffic city and there's a lot of kind of you know positive benefits that that come from that while the team you know be able to ultimately work to make the world a better place so i think that's probably the, the one that we're most proud of overall um and then obviously you know the the social impact that that we've been able to achieve to date but more so you know the business is continuing to grow and scale so we're kind of super excited about what's yet to come and are there any tips tricks hacks or ideas you can share for any aspiring entrepreneurs out there who are thinking about starting their own mission-based business yeah i mean i think i think the the big thing is to you know not get too caught up in doing it perfectly to get started i think that's one of the challenges with being mission driven is that you want everything to be perfect from an ethical and and values point of view and so figuring out you know what is what can be good enough to know that you can come back and optimize for it later if everything works because if everything doesn't work then all that time that you spent optimizing to get something perfect is worthless because the business isn't going to be you know successful enough to to allow those things to have the impact that you want them to so figuring out you know what's necessary to get started and, and what you're willing to you know leave to come back to to fix later on and what's next for who gives a crap where to from here yeah so we've sort of got um yeah this this new product that i dream cloth out the door that sold out quite quickly so we're excited to kind of get that one back in early next year and then from there, continue adding a few more products into the mix and then expanding our footprint. So we're putting down our first warehouse in, in Europe next month and then um, hopefully another warehouse uh, in another country shortly after that. Or Europe's not a country, obviously, but another a different country shortly after that. So that's kind of um, maybe pretty busy for, for 2021, working on those few bits and pieces whilst continuing to grow you know, in the countries that we're already in. So taking over the world, basically. Yeah, I mean that. Like, uh, you, you sort of have to. Like, if you think about everyone in the world having access to a toilet, we we theoretically would have enough if everyone in the world used our product tomorrow. And so we have to find more people who can become customers in order to go about achieving that change. And so, um, yeah, we've always sort of had that global view from from day zero, and 
it's kind of cool to see it resonating and, and um, working in, in countries that are potentially be able to. And Simon, here's our favorite doozy of a question. If you could have one message or piece of advice truly heard by everyone on the planet, sort of like a little zap into their brain and they truly hear it and understand it, what would it be? I mean, I, I think it's, I always come back to this quote and I don't know who originally said this. I think it's hard to find out, but the idea that every dollar you spend is a, a vote for the future that you want to live in. For me, I think that really resonates, you know, that gets right into the, the, the heart of that idea that if we all make very small decisions, but we do it on mass, the impact from that is absolutely massive. And so I would encourage everyone to think about, you know, what that means both individually, you know, how they think about what they're consuming, but also at work, like what can you do at your work to shift the way that people spend their money to have more impact. And if we all do that, then the resulting change from that will be huge. Love that. And now this episode is going to be released on the 10th of December. So for people who are rushing around trying to find gifts at the last minute, what are your thoughts on receiving a box of toilet paper for Christmas? Is that acceptable or not acceptable? <laughs> Chris, honestly, November, December is our, like by far our busiest time of the year. So a lot of people like to gift uh, a holiday edition, which we um, have recently launched. So this year it's an A to Z themed um edition and the idea is that every role has different letters on it so you can kind of spell out fun messages in the bathroom leave <laughs> passive aggressive notes you know whatever makes sense um but you know it has kind of a, a festive color theme to it so um yeah it's a, a great little present in australia we've also done some 12 packs which is the first time we've done a 12 pack before um so awesome for gifting we can't wait to see what people think very cool. And for those listening who want to support Who Gives a Crap, where is the best place to do that? Yeah, you can just jump on whogivesacrap.org is our website. And then we're Who Gives a Crap TP on all of the different social media channels. Love to see you there. Thank you. Love it. Simon, thank you for your time. Who Gives a Crap is on a wonderful roll. And we look forward to seeing your team continue to tear down the barriers to a better future. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been great, great fun. And that's a wrap for 2020, folks. Hope you enjoy that episode as much as I did. So super inspiring to hear about the new ways of doing business that actually benefit people all over the world. And to think that all the other historically mundane products we use every day could be reimagined to not only be more fun, more environmentally friendly, but also to change people's lives. Leaves a lot to be optimistic about. As always, thank you for listening and we will catch you next time.